Thank you for turning back for another episode of Berkeley Technology Law Journal Podcast. My name is Gabriela Abreu, and our today's guest is Brian Israel. He graduated from Berkeley Law in 2009, where he received the Jurisprudence Award in Patent Law. Brian worked at the U.S. State Department, and among numerous negotiations with foreign governments, he represented the United States internationally as U.S. representative to the Legal Subcommittee of the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. In 2017, Brian joined Planetary Resources as General Counsel, while he oversees the legal, regulatory, and compliance functions for the company, its parent, and the Planetary Resources Luxembourg. Brian has deep experience in legal dimensions of developing and regulating advanced technologies. Alex Caliguri and Miranda Rutherford are our hosts today and talk with Brian about his work both managing space portfolio at the U.S. State Department during the Obama administration and working in private industry. Hi, Brian. Great to see you again. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Very, very happy to be home in the Bay Area and back here on campus at Berkeley. Yay. Thank you so much for coming. I would love to hear more about your work managing space portfolio at the State Department during the Obama administration. Uh, I'd be happy to tell you about it. So I, I took over the space portfolio in 2011, and the, the lawyers within the State Department rotate every few years uh, between offices with, with different regional and substantive responsibilities. And so the job I took over uh, was, was affectionately known as the Cold Dark Places uh, portfolio because it included the Arctic, uh, Antarctica, Continental Shelf, uh, Science Technology Cooperation. Uh, and outer space was, was not a footnote, uh, but it wasn't as, as prominent as it became. Uh, and around 2012, the, the footnote sort of swallowed, swallowed the rest. Uh, there was this new dynamism uh, in uh, commercial space activities, uh, both what was happening and, and what was being announced uh, uh, with, with uh, not just new companies, but entirely new uh, space activities that not even governments had engaged in. Uh, not only being announced sort of uh, on PowerPoint slides, but with, with credible venture funding behind them, very credible people involved. Uh, and and it, uh, uh, at both the international level and uh, in the United States, uh, it kicked off you know, a lot of discussions uh, about how best to, to manage and enable uh, these, these promising new activities. Exciting. So can you break down for me uh, for a second the different agencies that sort of cover different aspects of commercial space? Oh, certainly. So uh, in in some countries, the, uh, particularly those that have developed their commercial space activities a, a little bit later, uh, they take a, a, a unitary approach. So the United Kingdom has uh, the Space Act, uh, and the, uh, there is one statutory framework uh, and, and one authority that uh, that is responsible for licensing space activities, full stop. In, in the United States, the uh, regulatory uh, frameworks grew up in response to the activities that came first. Uh, so in the early 80s, we had the um, uh, commercial launch licensing uh, framework that the Federal Aviation Administration of the Department of Transportation uh, it administers. Uh, in the early 90s, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is part of the Department of Commerce, uh, got authority to um, regulate remote sensing, basically Earth observation satellites, anything with a, a camera looking down at Earth. Um, and, of course, the Federal Communication Commission 
uh, regulates uh, uh, frequency, uh, spectrum usage, uh, satellite communications. Um, and the, so, so, so that's been going on for decades. What was new and interesting uh, in, in, in sort of corresponded to the time I uh, uh, took over the space portfolio at the State Department uh, were new activities that colored outside the lines of those licensing frameworks. Uh, and this was the concern of the State Department because the State Department and its Office of Legal Advisor are responsible for ensuring the United States compliance uh, with its international obligations, uh, including its obligations under the Outer Space Treaty. And I, as I know you know, as a, as a space law enthusiast, um, uh, the Outer Space Treaty, like any treaty, uh, the, the obligations and rights run the nation states. Um, but it doesn't end there. In Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, uh, uh, states' parties, national governments, uh, are, are legally responsible for uh, uh, supervising non-governmental activities and ensuring the conformity uh, of their nationals uh, with the treaty. So, as, as I mentioned, we, we have this tripartite framework that, that, that covered really everything that was flying. Uh, but there were things on the horizon uh, that, that uh, were not covered. And as companies began seeking legal certainty about their plans and asking the government, uh, are we good to go? Uh, the answer came back, no. Not because anything they were proposing to do was, uh, was illegal, was, was per se inconsistent with international law. Uh, it was just a matter that um, it could be done some ways that would be compliant and some ways not, but the government was without the authority, the, the legal authorities, to provide that conditional yes. Uh, and that is the uh, genesis of the legislation, the, the legislative um, discourse right now uh, about uh, a, a licensing framework uh, to enable next generation uh, commercial space activities. That's so cool to hear. You also represented the United States before the UN on outer space issues. Can you tell me more about, I think you pronounce it, UNUSA? Oh, it's, it's, it's copious, actually. Oh, wow. uh, it's, it's, the, it's the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Okay. Uh, USA is the Office of Outer Space Affairs, which is the Secretariat. Oh, cool. So you work directly with copious. Yes. I, I was the, um, the U.S. representative um, to, to, to the copious legal subcommittee, which there, there, there's a copious plenary body, and it has two subcommittees, a legal subcommittee and a scientific and technical subcommittee. Excellent. Can you tell me more about the history of that position and about your experiences with the subcommittee? Certainly. Well, the, well, the, uh, the, you know, the, the history of the position is, is um, the Copious Legal Subcommittee is w where the, the Outer Space Treaty and its progeny were born. And uh, uh, it, it, it was a um, very, very important in the formation of the core of the international legal framework we have today. As I mentioned in the talk earlier, uh, you know, uh, at the beginning, Arthur Goldberg, who was a uh, United States Supreme Court Justice had stepped down from his seat on the Supreme Court uh, and as UN ambassador, head of the U.S. delegation to COPE U.S. and negotiated the, the Outer Space Treaty. So uh, the bar was, was certainly higher, uh, you know, in the, in, in the, in the 60s than it, than it was when uh, I was in the chair. Um, and, you know, all joking aside, there were many in the COPE U.S. Legal Subcommittee who felt that the U.N. had lost its way, that the move away from multilateral treaty making uh, was tantamount to an abdication of uh, the UN's role in space governance, uh, that, that it should get back to uh, treaty making. Uh, this was not a, a view that, that I share. Uh, I, I believe very strongly that the, um, that uh, actually, uh, 
Kyopus is a victim of its own success in that regard, in that the international legal framework for, for outer space uh, is part of its success is it, is it has dispensed with the need uh, to accommodate change through making more multilateral treaties, which is quite a uh, cumbersome uh, pr process. Uh, it, it is it has given us options to address the change that we've experienced and continue to experience through less formal and, and relatively agile means. Um, I think my favorite example is called the uh, International Charter for Space and Major Disasters, or the Disaster Charter. And this is a, this is an initiative of um, a handful of, of government agencies, I think of 15 countries, and certain private satellite operators. And it, the, the result is a... Uh, uh, is a coordination of remote sensing satellites uh, and a, a single coordinator that when, uh, when when there's a natural a natural disaster, uh, the disaster response authorities of that country can call a single number and the person at the desk can coordinate and task uh, the, the satellites that can provide valuable data uh, within hours. Uh, and there's a network of people who can provide value-added processing uh, so, so, so to make maps that overlay population centers with damage, um, and really make extra use of these exquisite assets in space, uh, and it, it it works very well. It's been invoked hundreds of times, and it's all done according to uh, uh, a non-binding uh, arrangement uh, that was set up literally from concept to operation in about three months, uh, which is not not a, a timeline that would be accessible uh, if we were doing it through a treaty. Um, but that's only possible uh, because of the legal foundation established by the Outer Space Treaty and its progeny. That's amazing. I also love to hear stories about outer space law having real impact on people on Earth. That's super cool. Are there any other issues that came up during the six sessions you represented the United States? Uh, space resource utilization uh, was a uh, was was a very hot issue, um, and as as was orbital debris. Um, but the uh, uh, in uh, I think 2016 uh, the, the first session following uh, the enactment of the Space Resource Utilization Act by U.S. Uh, Congress and signed by President Obama in, in November of 2015 uh, it, it was a when I walked into the room the entire room fell silent uh, it, it, it was um, I think a lot of uh, a lot of delegates uh, had uh, believed that. This was a effort by the United States to legislate around uh, the Outer Space Treaty uh, on an issue that was was very important: the, the utilization of space resources. Uh, and so my role uh, was to both, you know, in the plenary session, but also in, in the myriad one-on-one um, -on -one meetings on the margins, to pull back the curtain and and show what what was really there. Uh, what wasn't it, it, the case was not quite the opposite. Um, both the legislature and, and the president in his uh, signing statement uh, had made very clear that uh, this was uh, confirming uh, the application of uh, the Outer Space Treaty to these questions uh, and that everything that was granted in that act was only to the extent consistent uh, with the United States obligations under the Outer Space Treaty. And so I think once the um, once once the all that nuance became clear, uh, the, the the global reception was was more favorable, but still quite um, uh, still still quite a contentious issue to have uh, national legislation on an issue that 
many countries believe should be addressed first on a multilateral basis. That's really interesting, and it makes a lot of sense. I guess my follow-up question would be, do you think that the sort of exclusive use would violate the Article 1 requirement of uh, free for exploration and use of all nations? Uh, so, so ex ex exclusive use of uh, of the resources of a celestial body, or the exactly like uh, the Osiris Project, uh, Osiris Rex Project, and NASA. They land on an asteroid, they take everything they want. Now, is that asteroid still free for exploration and use by everybody else, if all the resources have been harvested? Well, uh, o o Osiris Rex is not going to harvest all the resources. It's it's a it's a uh, ounces if that uh, size size sample. Um, the the approach of the United States to this question, um, you know, really back decades, uh, has, has been this. And you can find this um, articulated very clearly in uh, in 1979 and 1980 by uh, uh, Secretary of State Vance uh, and his uh, legal advisor Bob Owens in, um, in testimony before the United States Senate. Uh, and the, the Secretary Vance and his legal advisor in, in, interpreted in the Senate testimony. The, the prohibition of Article Two of the Outer Space Treaty, prohibition of national appropriation, to preclude uh, a country from either asserting or recognizing and enforcing, uh, you know, property interests in the resources in place, say an asteroid or or, or, or the piece of an asteroid, um, but the resources separated from their place fell into the freedom of use granted by the treaty, um, and so uh, while excluding uh, nationals from other countries from from a resource in place might present problems. Uh, extracting that resource and, and what you do with it after uh, was was within those freedoms, subject to you know compliance with other sort of dimensions of of uh, of, of the treaties. Interesting. So now you are general counsel of Planetary Resources. Can you tell me more about this company and its mission? Yeah. So so Planetary Resources uh, was founded to. Uh, to, to enable the sustainable uh, exploration and development of outer space uh, by utilizing the, the resources of celestial bodies to, to um, develop it, uh, to, to lessen our uh, dependence on Earth, uh, at least for um, activities in space. And it, Planetary Resources has been uh, a pioneer uh, both in uh, space technology, uh, but, but also in the... Uh, in, in law and policy as well. Uh, since, I mean, it's, it's been around for nearly a decade. Uh, it, it came out of stealth mode in 2012. Um, even in the years since it's, it's been, you know, publicly active, uh, it, it has it has started conversations, changed conversations uh, world, worldwide um, around uh, space resource utilization. Uh, and and it, it has also flown pioneering technologies in space. That's really exciting. As general counsel, were there any space-specific uh, problems that you got to talk, like legal questions that you got to answer? Yeah, so so my uh, my day-to-day -day work uh, is is much less focused on uh, the international law of, of space or, or, or even space-specific legal regimes than, than it was even when I was at the, at the State Department. Um, it's it, it's 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 the usual grab bag of issues that any general counsel of a, of a venture-backed company. Uh, would, would face, including you know corporate law matters, uh, IP matters, uh, commercial contract matters, real estate, uh, and the like. Um, uh, 
there there are some you know problem sets that are common to many space uh, companies. One of them is export controls, uh, in that a lot of the um, a lot of the, the technologies that space companies work on and, and with are subject to those. Um, and so there's a there's a a real present day to day uh, compliance imperative around that. Um, and another is there are um, you know the space specific uh, licensing regimes, particularly for satellite communications, um, that that are a little different than than other technology companies. Uh, but 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 th those those aside, uh, it's not it's not much different than being general counsel of uh, of, a, of a similar situated technology startup. Cool. What's your favorite part of being in the space industry? Uh, working with brilliant engineers, working on really 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 hard problems. Uh, the you know the, the reason I joined Planetary Resources uh, was the team and uh, the 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 people there. Uh, Came from lots of different corners, different disciplines. Uh, everyone had sort of conquered the highest heights in, in, in their own area, uh, and they were used to doing really, really hard things. Uh, and so, seemingly impossible things didn't deter them. They simply broke them down into lots of smaller steps and, and solved them. And it's just, it, it was, it was inspiring and, and infectious. Uh, and, and so, I, I enjoy uh, being around that, being part of it, and. And helping to uh, enable them to do what they do. Interesting. Is there any comparison between your government work and your work in the private sector, or are they just totally different universes? No, they're they're. Uh, I I think they use a lot of the same muscle groups, uh, and I, I was pleasantly surprised to find this. Uh, and uh, I I think actually being a State Department lawyer for eight years prior to being uh, general counsel of a of a fast moving technology company that is breaking a lot of new ground was, was very good was very good preparation and training because the State Department almost every day something came up that no one knew what to do with because no one had ever seen it before uh, and we just had to do the best we could uh, usually in a pretty compressed uh, timeline uh, and, and so it, it builds a certain comfort with fielding uh, whatever comes up uh, and uh, and doing the best to, uh, to to just solve it. Um, the, the legal profession uh, uh, has become quite specialized, um, and so I found that having uh, working on a wide breadth of issues was helpful for moving into another job where I had was responsible for a wide breadth of legal issues. That's very exciting to hear. Uh, I know I am really excited for your spacewalk class next semester, and I was wondering, are there any topics that you think you're going to emphasize more than somebody who hasn't uh, been a practitioner of spacewalk? Like, what has your career really led you to uh, find really valuable in learning about space law? Well, I think with the with the class this this coming spring, uh, I want a, you know it's just a seminar, so I, I want to give uh, students really a lens to, uh, uh, to to look at what what's coming on the horizon uh, and and the basic tools to uh, equip them to be participants uh, in in writing the story. Uh, of our uh, of, of our species future in space if, if they're interested in participating in, in some way uh, because there will be there will be opportunities uh, I can't say what they are uh, because I don't know but but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that, that there will be uh, and whether participating in government uh, with a private company or you know with a venture capital fund or all of the above at, at different points in their career uh, would like to um, uh, introduce the, the class uh, to, to the basic building blocks that, that will apply. And may I ask a little bit about how you see humanity's future in space? 
Sure. I don't. I don't have. Uh, 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 this. This is not unlike uh, Elon Musk or uh, uh, Jeff Bezos. This is not something that. Um, uh, you know, what was a passion I brought from childhood or, or even uh, early adulthood. Uh, I, I sort of come into space uh, accidentally uh, and and um, uh, am, am still sort of evaluating um, uh, what future I want to see. I don't uh, I don't have a desire to go to space. Uh, I think my, my interest uh, in space is, is twofold. Uh, I, I enjoy working on the, the, tech, the technological and the legal and governance problems uh, that are very challenging and very rewarding. Um, I also believe that space has capacity, like a few other things, uh, to inspire and bring out the best of Earthlings uh, uh, on Earth. Uh, daring you know, feats uh, in space, particularly human exploration, things like the Apollo program, um, cause humans to, uh, I think, step back and understand their place in the world, um, and and to think on a higher plane uh, than than whatever route we might be in at the time. And so I think there's tremendous social utility beyond the immediate, uh, you know, knowledge gained from space exploration uh, or the you know t- technology that it derives from it uh, in, um, uh, in in helping bring out the best of you know, Earthlings here on Earth. So I guess I have one more question. Do you think aliens exist? And if so, what legal framework would apply to their landing? Ah, jeez. Do I think aliens exist? I don't have, uh, I I don't know, but I would be surprised if uh, there there was no life uh, anywhere uh, else in this giant space. and uh, that's not an original thought. I'm, I just I just uh, listened to the uh, audio book of uh, Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot, which is I, I would highly commend to everyone because it is 20 years old, uh, but it is still on point. Um, and uh, having done that, I, uh, I I I feel like it would be almost feel arrogant to assume that we are the only life in in all of space. Uh, you know that there there is a um uh i don't i don't have a good answer for what uh laws should apply to say first contact uh but but there there are uh, uh people thinking about this one of them is uh richard builder at the university of wisconsin i i mentioned um in the talk earlier today uh you know in the, in the 50s before sputnik the lawyers in the state department were uh were writing legal memoranda uh, you know, trying to answer the question about well, what is the legal consequence of you know a satellite in orbit, and uh, Professor Builder uh, was was among those lawyers at the State Department, uh, and and has written uh, pressing articles about space resource utilization before that was fashionable, uh, and has now moved on to uh, SETI, which is um, you know first first contact and, and thinking about what what legal framework should be. So the first thing I would do is is go look to see what Rich has written and uh, and probably agree with them. That sounds excellent. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming back to Berkeley and have an amazing weekend. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Miranda Rutherford and the rest of the team at the Berkeley Technology Law Journal.
We want to give a special thank to today's guest, Brian Israel. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and renting us on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever you found our podcast so we can reach other listeners. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for our show, please contact our editor at miranda.brutterford at berkeley.edu. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be up to date. This podcast is intended for academic entertainment purposes only. Don't get legal advice from podcasts. Talk to a lawyer.